Well, if you're joining us for the first time, like Bo said, we have been going through the book of Acts. Um, we are in chapter 9 this morning, beginning chapter 9. It's been a lot of fun. Um, we're, we're fixing to celebrate our one-year anniversary here at the end of the month. And I thought Acts would be a perfect book for a brand new church to look at, looking at all the uh, trials, the role of faith, um, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. All these things are so present in the church, in Acts, uh, I, I wanted to go here for us and see what does the church life look like. So, we are going to look this morning. Whoa, I just went way up. Just because I took a deep breath. We're going to look this morning at Saul's conversion. Uh, perhaps behind the resurrection, the second most apolog- important apologetic truth um, or proof, I should say, out there. And if you don't know the word apologetic, I don't mean we're, we're sorry for saying that. That's not what I mean. The word apolo- uh, apologetics comes from the idea of making a defense for. That's the Greek idea. And so Saul's conversion has proven incredibly important for Christians when defending the historic Christian faith. Saul was the sworn enemy of the church. And people who oppose the truth of Christianity today have found it very difficult to explain how this man can do such a 180, um, other than what the account tells us happened. Two such men, named Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, uh, tried to do this. They were both lawyers living in the 18th century. Both of them were atheists, and both collaborated together Understanding that there's two pillars upon which Christianity rests. And if they can be disproven, we can justify our atheism. Um, So West decided that he would research the resurrection of Christ in order to write a book disproving it. Lord Littleton said, okay, then I'll research Paul's conversion to write a book in order to disprove that. Um... And as both men investigated, it's it's an interesting story because both men stood out to disprove these two pillars. And as they were investigating it, sometime later they came back together and said, hey, how's it going? And both of them said the same thing at that halfway point. Both of them said, ah, this is hard. In fact, the the evidence seems actually very strong for both, both of these events. They both agreed, yet they weren't convinced of their truth yet. So they determined we're going to set back out and we're going to finish our research. When they came back together in the end, Gilbert West had written a book called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord Littleton had written a book called The Conversion of St. Paul. And in some volumes, these two were put together as one volume. And in those, in the flyleaf, in the front little paper there, they said, blame not until thou hast examined the truth. Both of them became convinced of the historicity of such events. In their honest evaluation and examination of, of the truth, of the events surrounding everything, both were convinced of the historicity of the resurrection as well as that of St. Paul, his conversion. And those two books became mighty works for the church to consider. But what these two men recognized, as I said, was that the conversion of Saul stands as perhaps the second most important apologetic proof for the Christian faith behind the resurrection. 
You've got to ask, what would make the chief persecutor of the church a zealous, and in Paul's own words, an excelling Jew beyond even all of his peers? What would make him convert to the faith he once tried to destroy? Every attempt has failed. In fact, the most popular attempt says, well, Paul had an epileptic seizure and had this vision. You've got to assume he had epilepsy, number one. But two, you can't account for the witnesses who saw the light, heard the voice, though they didn't understand what was being said. And it doesn't account for Paul's complete change of belief. Paul would later write in his ministry in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, a fabulous, fabulous verse. He said this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. When you do a survey of world history, the stage had been set perfectly by God. Perfectly. Alexander the Great, some four or five hundred years earlier, had conquered the world. He had made one language dominate everything. His empire would begin to morph into the Roman Empire. And when Paul's time and Jesus' time came around, the Pax Romana, Roman peace, was ruling. There was an openness in the Greek culture to ideas, a, um, a pursuit of education and knowledge. Whereas the Jewish world, uh, in many ways, was stuck in their orthodoxy, zealous for the traditions of their fathers. It was almost like two contrasting worlds. But the fullness of time when Jesus came... It was a perfect time for the spread and propagation of the gospel. It started in Jerusalem, but the cultural and historical setting allowed it to spread very quickly and very easily. And we read, we're not going to look at Acts 9.15 today, this will be next week. But we read, in this fullness of time, God had one more important piece to introduce into the world. And his church. In 9.15 he tells Ananias to go to Paul. With some hesitation Ananias kind of combated that. But the Lord in verse 15 says Ananias go. For he Paul or Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The uniqueness of Paul made him a perfect fit for what the Lord just identified as a chosen instrument. First of all, he was an Israelite. He said that in Philippians 3.5. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, both of his parents were fully Jewish. There was not a mixed blood like the Hellenized Jews. He was fully Jewish. His pedigree was pure, in other words. Not only that, he was very familiar with both Jewish custom, culture, and language. In fact, in Acts 21, verse 40 through 22, verse 2, when the Jews later are trying to kill him, he begins speaking to them in defense in the Hebrew language. And when they hear Paul speaking in Hebrew, whoa, what's that? He arrested their attention because he knew them. He spoke in their language. On the other hand, he was born in Tarsus. He was reared in a well, uh, he was reared in and well acquainted with both Greek culture and its philosophies. Acts 17, I can't wait to get there. 
Uh, only eight more chapters, but I love I love Acts 17. Is where where uh, Paul goes to Athens, and he stands in the Areopagus, the school that Plato had founded, where ideas were presented and debated, and he makes his stand there. With understanding their culture, identifying cultural elements, he starts with where they were at and introduces the gospel. It is such an awesome account. He knew their philosophies. He knew their culture. And he could use that to his advantage when he preached the gospel where they were. In fact, in Titus as well, Titus 1.12, he quotes some of their own poets. It's an interesting account. Tarsus, along with Athens was considered a preeminent city for Greek philosophy, culture, and education. So before Paul was sent off to study at the feet of Gamaliel, as we're going to look next, he was brought up in that context, well acquainted with the Greek way of life and thinking. Not only that, he possessed all the privileges of being a Roman citizen by birth. In fact, when the Romans flogged him later on in the book of Acts, he said, is it lawful for you to flog Roman citizen and the the man the soldier who said you're Roman citizen I bought my citizenship for a large sum and Paul said yeah but I was born one and he freaked out he used it to his advantage all the privileges that it afforded him he was also able and capable of secular trade right he supported himself as a tent maker perfectly suited to be a missionary he could support himself wherever he went he can move freely, engaging with both culture and idea. As I said, he was educated, however, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the preeminent Jewish rabbi teacher at that time. From a very young age, Saul sat at his feet and learned and became very zealous for the Jewish traditions. He was trained and skilled in Jewish theology, according to Galatians 1.14, and he was preeminent in his zeal, his leadership, and his theological insight and knowledge. And that was true before he came to faith, and it definitely became true after he came to faith. He excelled in Judaism beyond all of his peers. I love that point because as we looked at a couple chapters ago, Saul was one of those men who was trying to debate Stephen, a Hellenized Jew. And he could not withstand the wisdom that Stephen spoke with. And yet he excelled. He, he, there wasn't a point in Jewish theology he didn't know. And yet when Stephen spoke the scripture, he spoke with understanding. He spoke with knowledge of it. The Lord would use that zeal, that leadership, that theological insight to raise Paul up. To be zealous above all others. And he said that, I've exceeded all the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. He used his leadership. And Paul became, above all, a theological bulwark of the faith. Even Peter would write later on in 2 Peter chapter 3, Yeah, some of the things that Paul says are hard to understand. And Peter was, was no slouch. So... The uniqueness of Paul made him perfect for what the Lord was fixing to do in the spread of the gospel and the expansion of the church. It would have been, in other words, very, very difficult for the 12 apostles to be able to do 
what Saul could do. Because they didn't have the Greek upbringing. They didn't have the Greek insight. They couldn't move freely as Paul could with Roman citizenship. So let's look at our text. There's actually three accounts of of Saul's conversion. In chapter 9 where we are, this is actually Luke's summary of the conversion. It's very condensed. In chapters 22 and 26, Paul is giving his own testimony before um, the ruling governors and kings. So we'll cross-reference those, um, but I'm not going to exhaust them. We'll get there when, when we get there. All right, so Acts chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 through 9 and then begin. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So the context of this encounter with Christ is important. It starts off, Luke starts off with a contrast, but Saul. He's contrasting Philip who we looked at last week. Remember, Philip was taken down to the road uh, down to Egypt between Jerusalem and Gaza. He met the Ethiopian eunuch, planted that seed of the gospel in that man who had then carried into Africa, and then he went about preaching all over the countryside to the villages. So the gospel is spreading through Philip, but Saul is still on his murderous rampage. That's the contrast. It's meant to get our attention that though the gospel's spreading, Saul is still hard at work trying to stop it. He's at the height of his fury. That's the contrast. He is literally breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. His zeal led him, in other words, beyond the walls and villages surrounding Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter 8 real quickly, verse 3. This is after Stephen's stoning. Verse 1 says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the church, were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now keep in mind how big of a deal that was. It says the apostles stayed. But up till now, we've been kind of trying to keep tabs of how many people had come to Christ. At least 15,000 men that we know of. Beyond that were the women and children. The church was of considerable size now. And yet all of them were scattered. And who was at the helm of scattering them? Verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. 
He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul had basically stayed in Jerusalem to clean up those who dared stay. But not being satisfied with that mop-up, he sought to go to Damascus and the surrounding regions where they fled, dragged them back to Jerusalem to face justice. His very speech, his focus, was literally breathing threats and murder. It's hard to imagine how zealous you must be to be at this kind of place in your hatred for a group. We, we get convicted when we think a murderous thought, right? This consumed Paul. He wasn't only thinking threats and murders. He was carrying it out. It was his life. In fact, it's not hard to understand how Paul could justify himself. He, he said in chapter 26, verse 9 and 10, in recounting his conversion, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. He was convinced he ought to do these things. He was convinced it was right to kill those of the way. There's not shortage of Old Testament passages that he could have turned to to justify his zeal. Remember when Moses came down off the mountain and they're worshiping the golden calf, what did he do? He drew a line in the sand. He said, everyone who's for the Lord, come over here. The tribe of Levi came and then they slew their brothers. Remember Phinehas driving the spear through those who were co-joining with pagan women. He was praised by the Lord. If you read the apocryphal books, the Maccabean revolt, right? Judas Maccabeus cleansing the temple. Jewish history was full of accounts that Paul or Saul thought he was right in line with. He thought his zeal for the Lord and the traditions of the Father justified what he was doing. After all, he could look in the Old Testament and say, See? This is a point for me we need to consider. Some of the awfulest things in human history are done in the name of religion. With the justification of religion. In fact, I heard Rabbi Zacharias talking about this one time with Islam in particular. How Islam is such a great threat, not simply politically or secularly or whatever, its greatest threat is that it gives religious justification for the things that they do to other people. And religious justification is some of the hardest to overcome. And Saul was preeminent in his zeal for his religion. So he went to the high priest, Luke says, and asked him for letters to the synagogues. So we talked about this when Peter and John and the apostles, for instance, were brought before the court, the Sanhedrin. How the Romans still allowed the Sanhedrin, the power of life and death, when it, when it came to issues of their religious worship. They allowed the Jews to execute judgment and take the life of people if it was concerning their religious and temple worship. This certainly was. You remember what they accused Stephen of blaspheming, the law and the temple. That same line of thinking they used against Jesus, right? When they accused him. 
And Paul continued that line of thinking in justifying, persecuting, and imprisoning those of the way. So he sought letters. He, thought, he sought authority. But observe, we just read chapter 8, verse 3, how it was Saul who was at the helm of this persecution. How devastatingly capable this man was in leading it. Think about that. He was an incredible leader. To completely vanquish a church of people of 15,000 people. He was devastatingly capable in what he was doing. I love how the Lord will take that and use it for the church someday. That's incredible. Thousands of believers have been scattered. Hundreds, maybe thousands killed, we don't really know. But it's an amazing point to consider. I wrote in my own notes here, when you see some people, they're incredibly gifted in what they do, right? You can look at the world and say, wow, those people are talented people. And yet they use their talents for such wicked things. When I came to faith in Christ, I came out of a background of heavy metal music, if you don't know that. Maybe that shocks you. But I can remember some of the first people I started praying for while I'd be in my dorm room was Pantera. I prayed for their salvation. I prayed for Metallica. I prayed for Guns N' Roses. You've heard all these people. (laughs) They were huge influences on me. And I would look at those men and say, I love their musical ability. If only the Lord could get a hold of them and they use it for His glory. Wow. One testimony you ought to look up. I don't know if you've ever heard of the rock band Korn. Their guitar player was born again. And his testimony is incredible. You look at the man and you'd probably be afraid of him. But when he opens his mouth, sweet grace has come out. He was saved in the pit of despair, of drug addiction, of everything else. The Lord plucked that man and said, you're mine. The Lord can save those people. And I prayed for them. How often the Lord does this with people with with such incredible gifts. He'll take them and he doesn't do away with it. He sanctifies them and he uses it. That's going to be the case with Saul as we move forward. Let's move forward in our text here in Acts chapter 9. So he, he asks for letters from the synagogues, or for the synagogues at Damascus. He wanted to go down there and find any who were of the way and bring them back bound to Jerusalem. He didn't care if they were men or women. Didn't matter to him. He hated them. In verse 3 says, Now as he went on his way, he was approaching Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. It's an interesting, when, when you study both, uh, all three accounts, I, I summarized it for us, what we get from all three accounts. First, Paul, um, for some time, had been ravaging the church. We don't really know how long. He was going to Damascus to arrest Christians, having gained authority from the high priest. When the light from heaven flashed around him, literally the idea is it encompassed everything. It consumed them. They couldn't see anything but that. But Acts chapter 22, verse 6 says that it was about noon. Why is that important? 
Because one of the arguments against Saul's conversion was, oh, all Saul's, he, he looked up and looked into the sun. Jesus was standing on a hill or something, or somebody was standing on a hill, and he looked into the sun. Noon was high time for the sun. But the word Paul uses says, no, it, it was more brilliant. It consumed, it drowned out the sun. Such was the light. The light was witnessed by those who traveled with them, and all of the people, according to Acts 26, 13, fell to the ground. It came suddenly. In other words, they were walking, and then boom, it flashed. It was from heaven. It flashed all around them, and it was brighter than the sun. And yet, when the Lord begins to speak, only Paul understood the voice that was speaking to him. It's worth noting that uh, this is a point of contradiction for some people, they think. Um, because the, the Greek word for, for hearing someone speak and understanding what is being said is very similar. It can be interpreted either way. And so some people say, well, in one account it says that the people understood. In another account it says they didn't understand. So Luke's contradicting himself. No. What he's saying is they heard the voice. You can interpret it that way. But there was not understanding. So in Paul's account, when he says they didn't understand it, and Luke says that in Acts 9, they didn't understand it, though they heard the voice. Only Saul understood what was being said to him. And here's the message. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Who are you, Lord? He said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, the other two accounts, 22 and 26, there was more said in this encounter. When Luke summarizes it at this point, he doesn't include it, okay? Um, and probably because the events in 22 and 26 had already happened when Luke was writing this. He knew he'd include it there. First of all, Jesus identifies Saul, Saul. It's a double declaration, and it's meant to arrest your attention. First and foremost, it's meant to grab the attention of Saul himself. But we as readers, it's meant to grab our attention. In other words, Jesus is not simply introducing himself. This is a confrontation. This is a confrontation. Saul, Saul, that's the idea. Why are you persecuting me? There's a great truth there. I'm not going to expound on it. I just want to say it. That when you persecute Christians, you persecute the Lord. So inseparable is Christ from his body. An attack on his church is an attack against him. And he will judge those who do it in that way. He said the same thing in the Gospels, right? Go to those who are in prison. Go to those who are hungry. Right? Give them water. Give them food. For in so doing, to the least of these, what? You do to me. That should be an encouragement to Christians. Those who receive persecution, it's not me they're persecuting. It's the Lord, and he's conquered. He's been victorious. There's also a long-held belief, and this is important, by the rabbinical order that, that Saul was a part of, that in such an encounter, for instance, the glorious light that appears and a voice coming out of that light, those are important elements in Jewish um, religious custom. 
It was, it was held in the rabbinical order that this was an encounter with God. And so immediately when this light shone around him and a voice comes out of it, Saul, trained in the religious customs of the day, would have naturally first assumed, I'm encountering the Lord. Now he didn't know who the Lord was yet. But his first assumption would have been, this is not simply an angelic encounter. This is not simply a, an encounter with a lesser God. This is the Lord himself. That would have been his first assumption. The question, though, is a penetrating question. Why are you persecuting me? It brings Saul face to face with the reality of his actions. Now, you've got to understand what Saul thought he was doing was what Jesus said people would think. I'm doing God a favor. I'm exercising zeal for God's name. Persecution? That question would have immediately caused Saul's heart to drop, I'm sure. It's that apple in your throat kind of moment. His whole world, his whole paradigm is about to be blown up. As I wrote there at the bottom of the slide, the confusion, the alarm that must have flooded Saul's soul. He thinking that he was doing what he was doing was righteous. His question then is a natural question. Who are you, Lord? Paul at this point is remaining ignorant as, as to who it is that's speaking to him. And yet he's convinced that whoever it is, is the Lord. Now the word Lord there is the Greek word kurios, and is one who wields absolute authority over all. It's a very specific title. It's not designated to just anybody. It would be given to kings, to rulers. It's clear that's not the context Saul's using it in, right? This is a spiritual encounter. He recognizes whoever this is has absolute authority. Um, I'm convinced at this point that Saul is, is well I've got a quote that says as much I'll just, I'll just let MacArthur say it here's what MacArthur said when Jesus identified himself I am Jesus and it's interesting in chapter 22 verse 8 uh, Paul recounts that Jesus said I am Jesus of Nazareth why is that important up till now we've been looking at Every time, for instance, the Sanhedrin brought the apostles before them, that phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, was a derogatory slam against the Lord. Remember that? Because as the apostle himself said, Andrew, what good thing comes out of Nazareth? It was a way of jabbing them, in other words. And so Paul's inclusion that Jesus says, yeah, the one you're slamming all the time, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Here's what John MacArthur said. It is, hard, it is not hard to believe that he already knew the answer to the question that he asked. The question being, who are you, Lord? If not by faith, then by fear. His worst imaginable nightmare would have been to discover that Jesus was the Messiah. That Christianity was true. The gospel was God's truth. And that he had been fighting God. That would have been terrifying. When that realization sinks into the soul, it does terrify you. 
I can remember before I came to faith myself, the terror that reigned in my heart, realizing that my sin is an affront to God himself. It should arrest our souls. It should cause panic. Because it's a terrifying thing, the scripture says, to fall into the hands of the living God. And Saul had just done that. Literally. I imagine as I read this, that there was a pause between this interaction, between Jesus' first statement and Paul's question. I'm sure there was a pause, a contemplative pause. Very often when the Lord confronts a soul in their sin, He gives them time to think about who they are and what they're doing. It's a good thing. It's not a comfortable thing. But it's a good thing to have the reality of our sin sink in. Right? I think it's what helped play the the dramatic conversion that we see in Paul. Played that into account. Why did Paul so quickly and so completely turn from who he was and what he'd been doing? Because the reality of what he'd been doing sunk in. And Jesus led. I'm convinced there's a pause here. I don't think as we read it just straight through, I don't think that's how it would have happened. Some of the most uncomfortable but powerful moments is when God remains silent after saying something. If you look at 22.9, well, let's not go there yet. So there's two essential questions um, that we see from Saul. Okay, let's let's go uh, now. I'm on this slide. Let's go to Acts 22, verse nine. So in our account there in Acts nine, the first question is recorded. It's actually recorded in every account. <coughs> Saul asked Jesus, "Who are you?" In verse 9 of chapter 22, it says this, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. That's why I think there's a pause. I don't think, I, I just can't read it envisioning Jesus saying, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Paul says, what should I do? That's not how an, an encounter of this magnitude happens. I think there was time where Saul sat there, wide-eyed, heart in his stomach, freaking out. Until he resides the fact that Jesus is Lord, he submits to that fact. And he musters up the question, what do I need to do? Two essential questions that the scripture tells us Paul himself asked. First, who are you? C.S. Lewis famously said, you can boil down belief in Christ to three positions. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. He said this, if Jesus was a liar, you don't have to believe him. Right? He could have been someone who thought he was God and a lunatic, right? That's what lunacy would be. I think I'm God. A liar would say, I'm God knowing you're not God. But if he's really Lord, 
it determines our response very differently. You can dismiss him if he's either a liar or a lunatic. But if he's Lord, you cannot dismiss what that means. In fact, the next question you must ask, if Jesus is Lord, what's my response to him? What do I do? Lord, what would you have from me? On Tuesday night, we talked about this point in our uh, How to Study um, study. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, Jesus makes the question, who do people say that I am? And then more directly, he asks the apostles, who do you say that I am? That is the bedrock question of his entire ministry. And when you study, for instance, the gospel of Mark, Mark centers his entire gospel, it hinges on that question. That's how important that question is. Who do you say Jesus is? If you were to do a survey of religious opinion, which I would encourage you to do, ask your co-workers, ask your family, who is Jesus? Is he just some religious zealot? Is he a liar? Was he crazy? Who is he? His historicity can't be disproven. We've got to wrestle with the fact he was a historical figure and he made some exceptional claims and we've got to determine if what he claimed is actually true, it will change my life forever. We've got to press that point upon people. If Jesus is Lord, it changes you. Because it means I'm not. And I've been living as if I were. I've been trying to live my life autonomously from him. It's the same problem that happened in the garden. That's exactly why God gave Adam and Eve a command. To show he's still an authority over them. And in disobeying it, they wanted autonomy from God. It can't happen. God is God. That's why Jesus made that question, who do you say I am? The bedrock question of his whole ministry. In fact, Paul would later say in the book of Romans chapter 10, the confession of the church is this. Jesus is Lord. That if you confess that with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is paramount. That's why Saul had to be confronted with it. Saul, I don't know if Saul ever saw Jesus ministering. He would have been a young man if he did. It's likely, but maybe he didn't. I don't know. But at the very least, we know that he didn't believe Jesus was Lord. He didn't believe all the claims of these Christians. He thought it was blasphemous. And he wanted it stamped out. And he was about to have a reckoning. Jesus was going to make sure of it. This is so important. Until that question is settled... In anyone's heart. They're not fit for ministry. They're not fit for the master. If you're not convinced of who Jesus is. And if you haven't resigned yourself. Submitted yourself to his lordship. You're not fit for the master's use. It's interesting to me that after this account. We're not going to dwell on it. But back in Acts 9. Saul is taken into Damascus. And he's left alone for three days. How much pondering and examination went on during that three-day period? Pouring out confession. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. 
Saul's whole world and every thought that he held was vanquished. He needed time to press reset. So beginning to wrap this up, what about our religious pedigrees? I I love this account because Saul is probably more like most of us than someone who just lives some profligate life, right? Turn with me real quick to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll just begin reading in verse 2. He writes to the Philippian church. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then he goes into his background. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That is a bold statement. Look, you think you're something in the flesh? You think you could present yourself to God in righteousness? I could have done it better. There was no one who had a better pedigree religiously than I did. And he goes on. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. How important is that? He had no control over that. Yet he fulfilled the law. His parents fulfilled the law for him. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. And elsewhere he said, I excelled above everyone else as a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I didn't just speak threats, I killed them. So zealous was I. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's an incredible statement. You see, you can examine yourself by the law and say, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. But I'm sure every one of us, when we're honest, will say, "Uh, I have done that. Paul said, I was blameless. I followed the law to a T. There was not a charge you could place against me. But there's another righteousness to be had outside of the law. There's a righteousness that supersedes and exceeds even the righteousness found in the law. It's the righteousness of faith. That he couldn't gain when he was pursuing it under the law. He says, whatever gain I had in verse 7, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now here's the important part. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. Of all people, Saul could boast in his religious pedigree. And this is what many, countless, thousands of people do today. I spoke of my interaction with the Jehovah's Witnesses a few weeks ago at my house. 
And even when they admitted they've sinned, they still said, well, I hope that my good works are going to get me there. Even when they were told from the scriptures, they won't. There's none righteous. And you're not saved by works of the law. Well, I hope, I hope that's not the case. What were those people resting on? Their religious pedigree. Even though God has testified to every man, you can't be righteous. You won't be saved by the works of the law. How many of us still hold on? Well, I go to church. Well, I read the Bible. Well, I pray. Well, I'm part of small group. Well, I was born in the church. Well, I was baptized. Well, all these religious things we hold on to, it's our pedigree, and none of it saves us. That was Saul. And what Saul had to realize, it didn't matter. He had to come to a point where he said, all that stuff that I was hanging my hat on, I have to count as rubbish, literally dung is the word. I have to count it as loss. Why? So that the righteousness I may gain is simply by trusting on Christ. It's his righteousness, not mine. When he came face to face with Jesus, that pedigree was flipped on its head. As I quoted earlier, Paul said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. When coming face to face with Jesus, did you notice how Saul, who had been breathing threats and murders, suddenly was almost speechless? All that hostility was gone. His heart had been brought low in the presence of Christ. A proud, resistant heart was brought to confession and submission. And all of his zeal against Christ and Christians would be turned around 180 degrees. Reminded me as I studied for this of Luke 15. We know the chapter well if you want to turn there very quickly. It's the account that we've labeled the prodigal son. And it's unfortunate as I've studied it more and more that we have that title. It should be the prodigal son's. Because there's two sons. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And when you study the account, both of them were prodigal. But for different reasons and in different ways. The younger son, if you remember, I don't have time to go through it all. The younger son told his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. He went and squandered it all. On prostitutes and partying. He comes to the lowest place through the, the profligate lifestyle he lived. He finds himself in a pigsty eating pig food. Comes to his senses and said, my father treats his slaves better than this. I'll return. He returns. The father receives him. The picture of grace. But then there's the older son who gets upset. Why? You never threw me a party. You didn't ever kill a fatty calf for me. I've stayed here, I've served you, I've done this and that, and you've never shown me this kind of favor. And what it begins to reveal is that the older son, though he served the father, he served the father for his own end. That's what we religious people do. When we rely on religion to say, well, I'm this and that, I'm good, I'm, I'm righteous. We're only serving ourselves and our religion, not God. 
And Paul, or Saul, is the perfect illustration of the elder brother. He's the perfect illustration of the elder brother. Let's look at this. When we think of people who need to be saved, we usually immediately think of those like the younger son, don't we? The alcoholics, the drug addicts, the prostitutes. That's who we go to. The greedy. We don't usually associate the older brother with the same need. Why? Because he obeyed the father. He served the father. He respected the father. I want to read to you what Timothy Keller said. I haven't heard it put any better way. This will be several slides. This is in his book, um, Prodigal God. He says, in the gospel's view, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and to change. By contrast, elder brothers divide the world into two. The good people, like us, are in, and the bad people, who are the real problem with the world, are out. Have you found that thinking in yourself? Yeah. He goes on. Younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing. They say, no, the open-minded and tolerant people are in, and the bigoted, narrow-minded people, who are the real problem, are out. The people who confess they aren't particularly good or open-minded are moving toward God because the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. This is why, by the way, Jesus' appearance to Saul was so important for Saul. Saul didn't know he needed grace. He'd earned it. He didn't realize how bad he needed grace. Later on, we find Paul writing, I was the chief of sinners. And as I had Bo read earlier in 1 Timothy, I was a blasphemer. I was insolent. I persecuted the church in ignorance. And God was merciful to me so that I could be an example to you. If I was this, God will be merciful to you too. Keller goes on, elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself. Think about that. In your religious pursuits, are you pursuing the Lord or are you pursuing the righteousness of your own? Do you want God himself? That's what Paul said in Philippians. That I may gain Christ. Not a righteousness of my own. He says, so religious and moral people. Now listen to this very carefully. Religious and moral people can be avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord. As much as the younger brothers who say they don't believe in God. Think of an atheist. Atheists, we are the typical ones who avoid God, right? What Keller's saying is, no, those strict religious people are avoiding God just as much as an atheist is. Because you're relying on you, not Jesus. They don't believe in God, and they, don't, they define right and wrong for themselves. And here's the last two paragraphs. This is so important. He says, here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of 
moral behave, misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate and moral person. Think of what Saul said. As to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. I didn't break this list of rules like you people did. But Paul said, I was a chief of sinners. His sin was different. That's what he just said. They can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate and moral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Just as each son sought to displace the authority of the father in his own life. That's what Saul had done. When you rely on your own righteousness as Saul had, you're really declaring yourself your own Savior. You're really declaring yourself your own Lord. And Saul had to be confronted. Who are you? I'm Lord. Saul. I'm Jesus. And you're persecuting me. This crushed his paradigm. For good. For good reasons. If you've ever read um, one of the great thinkers of of late Christendom now, G.K. Chesterton. I love what he said. A newspaper put out in their newspaper, this is the turn of the century, this question in the newspaper, what's wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton very simply wrote back, Dear Sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world today? Me. That's what's wrong with it. That's true understanding. That's true understanding. That's what Saul had to learn. It's not the Christians who are the problem. I'm the problem. I thought I was being zealous for you, Lord. I'm persecuting you. I thought the righteousness I had was something. It's nothing. That's right. As Paul would later famously write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, if righteousness comes by works of the law, then why did Christ die? He died in vain. It's a good question to ask ourselves. It's a good question to ask anybody you're witnessing to. Hey, if you're relying on your own righteousness to get you to heaven, how good you can be, why did Jesus die then? If it's possible for you to be good enough, why did Jesus die? It was in vain. Don't you think Jesus as God would have known, hey, maybe not everybody could be good enough, but there's some people out there who could be. That's the right question to ask. Why did Jesus die for you if you can be good enough? It's kicking against the goads. I love it. In Acts 26, 14, when Paul recounted his conversion before King Agrippa, here's what he adds. Saul, Saul, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And what Luke didn't put in the chapter 9 account is this statement. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's not a question, it's a statement. He's identifying something for Saul that Saul couldn't recognize yet. Spiritually, he was blind. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. What, what's a goad? Goads were these sharp sticks that, that farmers would use to keep their beasts of burden moving. They'd poke them and prod them. And when the beast would try and kick against it, the farm would goad them harder. And they would be trained by that. Don't kick against the goads. What was Saul doing? He was kicking against the proddings of God. What's that tell you? It tells me this, that for some time in Saul's conscience, God had been wrestling with him. Remember that Luke included in, in um, 
chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, and when Stephen was stoned, a young man named Saul was giving his approval. Saul would later say the same thing. I think that account was intentionally put in there by Luke to say, Stephen's death affected Saul's conscience. As Saul continued murdering and imprisoning Christians, something bothered him. Being spiritually dead and blind, he didn't know what it was. Have you ever, as you rethink about your testimony, I was talking to Bo this week in our leaders meeting about this. If you've come to faith, think about what was goading you. Maybe it was the lifestyle you were living. Maybe you're a party, or maybe you're like every other American team. What, what was affecting your conscience? What was the Lord using to drive you to Him? That's the work of God. And there came a point where you recognized God's convicting me. That's why I'm unsettled. That's why there's no peace. That's why I sense something's wrong or missing. There's, it's the Lord. He's going. He still goes us today. My own testimony was such where I kicked against the goats for three years before I came to faith. Before I submitted to Christ as Lord. Began my senior year in high school and didn't end until my sophomore year in college. I kicked that long. Maybe some of you have been kicking against the goads in your own life. Maybe you've been trying to live well, to do all these things, and it's just something's not right. Maybe that's what's going on in your life. Maybe the Lord's saying, it's hard for you to kick against this. I want you as my child. When you listen to the testimony going back to the guitar player for Korn, Brian Welch, it's exactly the words he said. It's very interesting. He knew something was wrong with him. He knew he couldn't overcome these sins and peace. And even after he went to church, even after he started reading the Bible, as he's doing speed, he couldn't overcome it. And he opened up the scriptures, and the first passage he read was, I can't remember, it was out of the, out of, uh, the Old Testament. He who sins will die, something like that. And he knew, okay, Lord, I'm done. <laughs> The Lord got his attention. He was kicking against the goads. The goads. In the prodigal son parable, the younger son was goaded by his own unworthiness because of how he had lived. His utter desperate situation created by his own choices. He was goaded by the father's generosity and consistency, even to his own slaves. Those were the things that started laying hold of that younger son's conscience. And brought him back to the father. Unfortunately we never told what happened to the older brother. But if you look at Saul as an older brother. We are told what happened to Saul. Saul you're laying on a righteousness of your own. You don't have it. You're persecuting me Saul. You're fighting the Lord of glory. And Saul submitted. More... Of us, I believe, can identify in that sense with the elder brother with Saul. Most of us have grown up religious. Most of us haven't gone and killed people, for instance. We don't have some crazy testimony that can lay hold of us like, wow, you were saved? That's not us. We're like Saul where, yeah, I, I lived a pretty good life, actually. But what we don't see, what the danger of that self-righteousness is... 
is it blinds us to the need for grace as it did Saul. Consequently, we struggle with our need for grace. Our self-righteousness blinds us because uh, to our own pride, and it blinds us to the fact that we reject Christ because our trust is in ourself, not in Him. Let me ask you this question. Are you any better off, righteously speaking, if you keep the law? No. If you're tempted to say yes, think about the nature of what grace is. Keep the law. You won't be any better off before the Lord. That's what grace is all about. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.21, as I quoted, I don't nullify the grace of God. Because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus was exactly what Paul needed. It was Paul's greatest threat, his own religious seal for the law, a righteousness that he could lay claim to. It threatened to rob him of his greatest need, which was to see that he had no righteousness acceptable to Christ. He, in fact, was fighting against God. His ambition in Philippians 3.9, as we read, to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, was because he encountered the truly righteous Lord. He took his eyes off himself and put it on the Lord of glory. And he submitted who are you? And Jesus. What do you want from me? And he submitted. That's salvation. That's salvation. What do you say? Who is Jesus to you? If you say, Lord, have you then asked the next question, what shall I do? Have you surrendered your life to his lordship? Is your confession that Jesus is Lord simply words... Or did you, like Saul, abandon everything and follow him? That's the picture of Saul here. I love this picture. I think most of us identify with him. Though we weren't as great in our zeal. I love it that it was Paul who would later say, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the chief of sinners. A man who thought he had all figured out. That's the kind of person God will use. In our small group questions tonight, for those of you who may not be able to make it, I want to ask you those, some of the questions I ask them. When you think of people who need to be saved, do you think of someone like Saul? When you see people who are living just outlandishly sinful lifestyles, do you give up on them? Or do you see that, you know what? That might be the very person God's going to grab. Because he did. He did and he will. Let's pray.